Synchronicity will take you along. And here's your host, Travis William Skink Mateer. That's right. I am the host, Travis Mateer. And um, if that voice in the introduction sounds familiar, that's because um, I am introducing myself. And I'm going to continue doing that because there's no shame in my game. Um, this is all sort of a DIY thing. Uh, but I did I did record that. It's original William Skink track, but I am your host, Travis Mateer, a.k.a. William Skink, and this is the second episode of Zoom Cron, um, what I'm describing as my mothership podcast. So Zoom Cron is short for the Zoom Town Chronicles. Um, I have been podcasting since January 2021 under Zoom Town, um, but now the mothership will be Zoom Cron. I hope that's not too confusing. Um, as I continue to try and describe this on my take two of this introduction, I myself am a little confused, but that's okay. That's okay. It's confusing times that we live in. Um, and speaking of the time, what we have today, I'm recording this on October 12th. That is actually the birthday of an evil motherfucker by the name of Aleister Crowley. And it's very convenient to be recording this today um, because the conversation I am, I'm going to be having I actually had back in April of 2021 with Jason Horsley the author of the podcaster you'll be hearing me say this all again um, but I wanted to, to add something in the introduction before getting to the conversation that I first uh, posted back in April um, because it is Crowley's birthday and Jason Horsley wrote an amazing book one of many called The Vice of Kings and so I'm just gonna read a little a little section from this okay from what I've come to understand after se after several years looking into the possibility of large-scale systematic ritual abuse of children in the UK and elsewhere, one of the standard methods of perpetrators is to make jokes, quote-unquote, about what they do. C.S. Lewis even included a description of this method. I'm sorry, I had to turn off that phone. That was my co-host Tim Adams calling, probably trying to figure out what the heck's going on today. Um, anyways. Let's see. Let's get back to that. Um, C.S. Lewis even included a description of this method among the demon's arsenal in the screw tape letters. A thousand, quote, a thousand body or even blasphemous jokes do not help towards a man's damnation so much as his discovery that almost anything he wants to do can be done, not only without the disapproval, but with the admiration of his fellows. If only it can get itself treated as a joke. Um, that's from page 55 to 56. Um, and then Horsley goes on, Jimmy Seville must have learned from Screwtape. He spoke and wrote about his abuse of minors in such a brazen and shameless way that only those in the know could ever imagine it was anything but a joke. Those who are in the know and or who are similarly inclined recognize the tells and signal back. All others are fooled. Of course, if all there was to go on were this Crowley passage and the joke footnote, it would be rash to presume anything but gross irresponsibility on Crowley's part. But... There is considerably more. Yes, indeed, there is considerably more to um, the work of Jason Horsley in exposing and writing very, very um, intelligently and meticulously about subjects like Aleister Crowley, Whitley Strieber, 
Um, and and Horsley uh, places himself in terms of a subject that he writes about, looking at his past journals and really placing his family history uh, in the larger pantheon of uh, Fabian psychos that are uh, through long um, planned out uh, sort of systematic ways uh, moving us towards a, a future that um, is, is kind of like here and, and not that cool in my humble opinion. So without further ado and get ready for another introduction, um, here is my conversation with Jason Horsley. Thank you for listening. Okay, so we're recording now. Um, welcome to another episode of Zoomtown. I am Travis Matier, and today I have all the way from Spain, um, author, podcaster, movie autist, Jason Horsley. Hello, Jason. Hi, Travis. Um, I, I am so glad that you were able to, to spend time um, in this conversation w- with us today. Um, I have my, my tech guy, Tim, in the background helping me out. Um, and oh, I would explain why I felt like we were live or something. Yeah. Well, we're um, not live, I presume. We're not. No, we're not. And this is going to be just a, an audio. Um, I, I was interviewing someone else and, and she was a little worried about the fact that she wasn't in makeup, I think, and, and wasn't sure if the video portion was going to be out there. But um, just just a, an audio podcast. And we're we're kind of newbies. So we still have our training wheels on um, mm-hmm. and we're kind of figuring this stuff out. But I've been following your work now for, for quite a long time. Um, and so I'm going to try not be too giddy and um, sort of overexcited about the fact that we're, we're conversing. Um, but I, I want to give you a chance to, to introduce yourself a bit um, and kind of maybe like the 30,000 foot view, uh, which might not be the easiest thing, but um, of mm-hmm. sort of your path through through a lot of the darker stuff, I guess, of, of um, Western culture um, and how you've been grappling with it and just sort of where you're coming from, you know, some of your family background, some of that, so. Yeah. Yeah, that is the usual question for, a, right. for an interview. Uh, I, one of my difficulties is that I don't like to repeat myself, so I don't have a stock answer. Uh, also, I suppose that's a bit of a cliche, but when the present changes, the past changes. So, we, you know. Yeah. If I look back at the past, it's different. It's a different viewpoint and perspective. And as you pointed out before we started recording, the 16 maps of hell is uh, a capstone, or I'm thinking of another tombstone would be another analogy. (laughs) Right, (laughs) right. As in the stone, well, it's Good Friday today. So, the stone that had to be rolled away when um, I can't remember if it was Lazarus or Jesus resurrected, but anyway, one of them. So, it's that kind of period in my life and that's how I see the book to a certain extent that I'm uh, closing the book yeah, on a whole yeah. period of my life so uh, it is it is a little bit weird for me to introduce myself based on all that stuff and even to generate a great deal of interest in it unless somebody else has an interest which I know you do yeah and I yeah. always find that inspiring um, but yeah, the short summation is, is that I became a writer in the sense as I started writing very seriously in my adolescence. And that was the same period that I discovered Clint Eastwood and became obsessed with movies. And it was also the same period, and I don't want to really start with the ultra dark, but it is disclosed in Seen and Not Seen and 16 Maps of Hell, these two bookends of my recent work, uh, when I was also in a period of sexuality awakening, 
when my sexuality got compromised by a lot of violent imagery. And I see those three things as, as kind of entangled together uh, as in my development of auto um, false autonomy and intellectual um, intellectual capacity with my interest in immersion in movies, with my uh, hijacked life force through the culture you know, and being incepted with these, these toxic cultural implants and how that pertains, as I tried to map with 16 Maps of Hell, to the larger picture of occult uh, levers of control within our society, such as secret societies, occult rituals, organized child abuse, um, even darker stuff in terms yeah. of you know, ritual sacrifice and the use of violence uh, in a ritualistic fashion, satanic ritual abuse, for example. That whole thing which, which uh, got my attention just a few years later. Like initially I was trying to become a movie guy and very early on in my 20s, I got pulled into a whole other thing with the paranoid awareness. Yeah. And, I would say that the, the really common thread is that of spiritual seeking and that mm -hmm. from as far back as I can remember, I was aware that something was wrong, either with me or with the world or both. Turns out it was both. And, uh, and trying to find a solution or a resolution for that, as it turned out in all the wrong ways. <laughs> but in the last few years, I've been... Explore, uh, exploring retroactively or retrospectively all of those wrong ways, all the wrong moves, as I joked, I would call my memoir if I ever wrote it, <laughs> and thereby seeing the ways in which I was colonised, I was, uh, you know, why things went wrong, if you see what I mean, by seeing the, the ways I mistakenly tried to resolve the problem and understanding them better, I can see the nature of the the yes. conditioning that was imprisoning me. So it's it's not exactly reverse engineering. I don't quite know what that phrase means, but it's similar. It's tracking something back to the source. Yeah, it's it's like an excavation, um, a self-excavation. <clears throat> and one of the things that I wanted to just, you know, thank you for honestly is um is is how you have gone into your your past journals and and really just opened yourself up. I mean, literally kind of ripped open your your, your chest and your guts. Um, and I don't know many people, and I haven't come across many writers that, that are able to reference their previous work in ways that um, it's so enlightening. Um, it might help for context to, to tell you that I started reading Prisoner of Infinity last July when I stopped, uh, you know, pounding box wine. And so as I am trying to, you know, de-pattern alcohol use, which was a sort of self-medication um, coping mechanism as I was dealing with, um, you know, homeless-related kind of crisis trauma stuff. Um, Prisoner of Infinity became this book that I that I immersed myself in. Um, and then I quickly got Vice of Kings. So I was reading a little out of sequence, but um, and 16 Maps of Hell then was just this, this amazing work in which it felt like you were just doing this final exorcism on yourself. When you when you say you, you were colonized, um, I mean you really are looking into what got into your psyche, what got into your being. Um, from our culture, uh, our shared Western culture, and, and trying to identify this really difficult thing to identify to get it sort of out so that you can move on. Um, and, and it's interesting, when, when I reached out to you initially um, to do this interview, 
you asked a natural question, what are we going to talk about? And I wanted to talk about 16 maps of hell. But the longer the, the longer the time went from 16 maps of hell for me finishing reading it, the less I really wanted to delve into it. And, and the more I, I'm interested in, in, in how you're moving forward um, and why you're in Spain. Um, I know you were in Hope, British Columbia for a while working at a, at a thrift store. And so I'm really interested about maybe that transition from how your the physical place in Hope, British Columbia and that thrift store, sort of how that physical place worked with your writing and, and how it's led to a transition in your life now. Um, beautiful background. It looks like you're just in a great, great environment currently. So I'm interested to kind of hear more about that part of your life. Mm. Yeah, I was noticing the painting on the wall looks like flames of hell or something. Which <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's very red. <laughs> I don't think. But anyway, of course, your listeners won't be able to see it. Um, but it's fitting if it, if it does look like that. Uh, it's like a memento, you know, a snap. The flame, but, but the flames are behind you now. I mean, it's yeah, sort of in, yeah. in, the, in, the, in the past. Um, and, and But knowing the past and the, and the future and the present are all this very vibrant sort of interplay. Um, but what was it like being in, in running this thrift store and, and coming across interesting characters? And I know animals have been a huge part of your own awakening too. Uh, a close relationship with a cat. Um, mm -hmm. So I'd be really interested to hear hear some of that. Um, what's led up to the transition that you're currently currently in? Yeah, well, it began at least consciously in with the house renovations which I incorporated into Prisoner Infinity. So there's two things going on there in terms of writing that occurs to me. One is, as you pointed out, is I'm incorporating uh, old writings and yes. looking over and the whole of seen and not seen is, is a dialogue. Well, it's a trilogue, it's a dialogue with Jonathan Leatham, but, and then also a dialogue with my past self, looking at these early movie writings, my first published work, yes. uh, and, and, and decoding it, discovering yeah. hidden things in it and things that I was trying to hide without knowing it and therefore, therefore kind of revealing them. Um, yes. So that process, and then the other process that became, it did, it was in seen, not seen a little bit, but not much, but it became more explicit with Prison Infinity was uh, where am I in the present while I'm writing this book and how is it influencing the formation of this book, which you don't often get when you're reading a book because it, it destroys the illusion of a narrative in a certain sense, yeah? Because uh, it takes the reader out of the flow of the narrative and deliberately, intentionally, right. and tries to bring them into the moment in which the book is being written. Because, of course, that's where I, I am. I'm writing the book. I might be writing about all these things, but what's happening right now is I'm writing this book and then and what's going on around me there. And so in the case of Bruce and Vinley, well, these house renovations. And, and, and then this is a roundabout answer, but I'm aware that it's, it's easy to talk about the circumstances of one's life and then just get caught in the details and then a listener here might might miss the real the meat of it, which is right. that it's it's metaphorical. And I would say that all of physical reality is metaphorical. In fact, I've just done this podcast about Steiner on the revelation on the apocalypse. And it's very much, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's very much about this, how uh, what the apocalypse is, is the revelation of the reality that there is no outside. There is no world outside of us. It's yeah. all we're inside of this metaphysical existence called God, just to use that word as in, I mean, it's everything. It's mm -hmm. everything. So God is you know, a reasonable word for it. And um, 
as such, you know, our reality, our internal reality is much closer to the truth than what we think we see when we look outside. Because when we look outside, it seems objective. It seems yeah. like just all these objects and other people going around, they're all independent. Whereas if we look inside, we're aware that it's all us and all these organs and sensations and emotion, they're all happening together as an inner world. And the outer world is the inner world, is what I'm trying to say. They're mirroring each other. And so with the house renovations, it was when I, it wasn't, wasn't when I first became aware of this, of course, but it was when I first really started practicing it or, or experiencing it practically and experientially, that by renovating the house, I was working on my own interior spaces or allowing things to happen in them. Yes. And, and then that, that naturally and organically led to the thrift store, not in any causal way, uh-huh. although I could map it if, if, you know, if, if we had time. That obviously, there are one thing does lead to another, but there's no obvious correlation. Right, but it was right. the same period. And, and, and it was a similar um, trajectory, which was working in and with, within and with, the physical environment of our community in hope in order to improve it, restore it, transform it, um, uh, redeem it. And so, yeah, the house was obviously the crack house. And oh, okay, okay, yeah, yeah. Drug addicts in there that didn't even want to let the state agent in for us to see it. They had to be paid off to even open the door. And oh, wow. Yeah, and, and the state agent didn't want to go in either. He kept saying, don't go to that house. You don't want that house. And we said, well, we want to see it. Uh, and as soon as we saw it, we saw the potential. And But the potential was uh, inseparable from the reality, which was which was once we got in there, it was clearing out used drug needles and just, yep. I mean, as bad as you would imagine, really, um, and tearing out most of the guts and you know, just rebuilding it up from not from scratch but from very little and then the thrift store well that was more about I mean that was it was similar because the thrift store is you're taking people's casts off the stuff they don't want and a lot of time they they don't want to have to pay to take it to the garbage dump so they bring it to you so some of it is is literally garbage and then but it's a spectrum some of it's quite valuable and so then I was sorting it and and then and then it's selling it to people. Um, and then the kind of people that come into a thrift store, well, it's generally not the middle class or, or the upper class, although I always shopped in thrift stores, even when I was wealthy. Um, <laughs> right, 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 right. Generally the lower class and then the very low class as in the homeless and the drug addicted, because that was the kind of space we created where they were, where anyone was welcome and we gave away clothing and food, never money, uh, blankets, things that people needed and that was known. So of course, all those people knew they were welcome. Plus yeah. all the lonely people as the big Beatles so had it would, would come and congregate in our store because it was yeah. a place where they would be less lonely where they could interact. Uh, so it had that uh, intent behind it without any you know, highfalutin or pretentious ideological baggage. I mean, I didn't have any, neither of us had any. I mean, it, it, it's a, a strange thing because, of course, we have values. My wife and I have a certain value 
which would be difficult to sum up, but it's certainly not an ideological one. It's not a political one. Uh, I wouldn't even say it's a moral one, particularly, although it gets pretty close to ethical. It has to do with love and kindness and um, not rejecting anything, which, of course, right. is a job in a thrift store. You can't. I did. My wife didn't. I, I did reject some stuff. I just said, take that away. But generally yeah, speaking, yeah. You, you can't reject very much. You have to be pretty open-armed and open-hearted yeah. both to, to keep the business running. Same principle with the house. We, it was a shithole, but we didn't reject it. We said, <laughs> okay, we can make something with it. Yeah. I see that as very um, a basic principle by which to live, that everything is worthy of attention and TLC, tender loving care. You know, not everything, everything. This is... You know, we get back to the apocalypse on this. There is, there are parts that get cast out. It's right. true, but I don't think we are very fit to judge. And I think it's much better to err on the side of acceptance, yeah. um, not tolerance, because that's a, become a terrible word. Uh, anyway, this is a very long-winded answer, wasn't it? Um, no, I love it. This is this is great. I mean. You know, for someone that hasn't read Prisoner of Infinity, um, they might not understand how amazing this window was for a reader. And I can just say from from reading the book, it was it was fantastic to see that window into how you were bringing your direct experience uh, with a deteriorated um, physical environment. And I didn't I didn't realize the state of deterioration was sort of a drug den, you know, former drug den. Um, but but for a reader and for someone that was really you know caught up in in the my own sort of you know personal struggles, um, it was it was an, an amazing metaphor because it wasn't just a metaphor for you. It was that direct experience. It was you explaining this metaphor um, and how you saw the external environment as a reflection of the inner work you were doing. Um, and what I really have loved about um, a lot of your work is is this focus on the inner work. Um, one of the things, let's see, uh, if I can find the right excerpt, um, and to actually a few things I wanted to mention also about what you were saying about the, the thrift store. Um, when you say you gave out blankets and other things, but not money, right? As a person that's worked in a homeless shelter, I recognize that as kindness because um, a lot of times that, that direct payment of money goes to that direct enabling of um, you know, those habits that are not going to be very, you know, productive for that person, right? And so the kindness is the blanket, but the kindness also might be boundaries that say, well, there's certain things that I'm not just going to like hand over and give you. Um, mm -hmm. And that's not out of um, wanting to keep something that I have away from you. It is an act of kindness. It's recognizing there are um, a need for boundaries, right? Um, and so yeah. that that's something that I guess maybe people outside of the, the direct interaction with the spectrum of, of humanity that you were um, living with and, and, and working with, you know, people might not understand that that aspect of it. But um, you know, thrift stores are, are places that I dearly, dearly love. And one of the stores in Missoula is the Loose Moose, and it's the one store that I have my book of poetry for sale. I also have it for sale, a little self promotion, um, at the Zootown Arts Community Center online artist shop. But I, I was at the Loose Moose, and I had um, contacted you maybe a couple of weeks previous. Um, and and I, I don't expect quick responses from people. Like I, I'm really not trying to impose my will or sense of a timeline on what is happening right now because it's so magical and it's it's not my place to, to you know determine time frames. But I sort of had a feeling that it was right to try and maybe reach back out to you when I saw your your brother's book, um, your brother Sebastian Horsley, who um, died from his struggles with addiction. 
Um, and I saw that book being displayed at the Loose Moose. And, and then a couple of days after that, I had, it was a Sunday, I had um, referenced your work to two separate people in two separate conversations. And then I checked my email and you had responded. Um, and, and so it seemed that that was the way in which um, the world was, was giving, the universe was giving me signs that, you know, this was going to happen. But I also, you know, just last night received two books in the mail. Um, I had not realized that you were associated with synchromysticism, something I'm currently kind of looking into until I read this Wikipedia entry and your name was, was mentioned. And so, um, and I don't know if I'll find the exact excerpt, but um, it was interesting to read your, your, your piece in, in this edited collection because it seemed to be a warning that synchromysticism um, for people that are looking at knowledge for knowledge's sake, you know, acquiring knowledge just for the sake of acquiring knowledge, mm -hmm. um, your sense that that is just another potential addiction, right? Mm -hmm. um, and it's another potential for, for spiritual seekers, if you're just seeking this external acquiring of knowledge um, and you're denying the the reality of your lived experience, let's say you have a family or something and, and you're not acknowledging your kids um, or, or the things that are actually happening in your life, then what's the point of acquiring this knowledge when you are starving yourself spiritually, you're potentially impacting others around you negatively, um, maybe it's fueling addictions like alcohol. And, and so it was interesting to read this piece from, I guess it's uh, 13 years ago now, 2008, 2009. So I'm, mm. I'm wondering if your sense of synchromysticism if it's still something that you see as having any value, if you see it as, you know, a bunch of spiritual charlatans using a new term to sort of, you know, uh, suck in seekers that might not be as discerning as, as people that have been working with some of these concepts for, for a while. I know Christopher Knowles is also kind of re reigniting his interest in um, synchromysticism. And I'm, I'm now following him on Patreon. Uh, I hate Patreon, but I'm doing it because I'm very interested in, in his work in the siren and I've had some synchronicities around Elizabeth Frazier and the Cocteau twins. And, um, and so I'm wondering if, if that term is any, is any value to you still, um, or if it's evolved in, in your sense of what this, what these synchronicities, which are really just meaningful coincidences, you know, mm -hmm. um, and, and Carl Jung, you know, worked a lot with the idea of synchronicities. And so do you have a sense of what synchronicism is in the present moment? And, and do you have any value for that term or, or what synchronicities have meant for you? It's not one I use. I mean, lately I've tried to use, I mean, sync, the shorthand is, it's very, right. I found it very hard to drop that word just as an easy, oh, sync, oh, sync, oh, sync. Yeah, yeah. Just to point out something that seems worth pointing out. Often it's just simply numbers. Like an email will arrive at one eleven or eleven eleven or two twenty-two, and I notice these things and I consider them. I do consider them significant. Yeah. Uh, I don't try now. I mean, sometimes I might go into the numerology of what what three numbers mean. Obviously, if it's six six six, you know, right, right. I'm not going to treat that or think of that in exactly the same way as. 555, which was the number that I particularly found generating around my work in the Aeolus Cephas days, etc. So yeah, yeah. numbers do have a certain specific meaning. And then there's, and, and other things do, I mean, everything does, everything has a specific meaning. And then there's the fact that it's coming up, right? which is meaningful in just in itself, as in, well, it's very open, really. It doesn't really have positive or negative. I don't suppose any of these things necessarily do. I think it's very much how we 
how we respond to them. And so my bone with synchromysticism, and what I was about, I was going to say, but I didn't finish, was that I'm trying to use the word convergences instead of sinks. Okay. Because I think that's more accurate. Certain things are converging. And and there's a meaning in that. If two people are walking at random and they end up bumping into each other at the same crossroads, well, they're going to say hello. Well, the fancy meeting you here. Clearly, that's there's we could say clearly there's a reason but that might be overstacking it mentally but clearly there's a something that can come out of that encounter that wouldn't have come if it hadn't happened so when things converge yeah there's a potential for coherence we're looking for coherence but what i think about synchromysticism and even the word itself i said from the start it's just synchronicity they've just they've just stuck a different word on it to make it although to be fair phrase my niece uses far too much but in this case i think it's accurate to be fair the idea of synchronicism was making it more active synchronicity is the phenomenon synchronicity is the practice fair enough but maybe that's where my 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 reservation comes in why why would you want to turn this into a practice what is it isn't Ooh, is this, yeah i have an answer for it yeah go ahead well, I mean, I mean, I think I'm arriving at some ideas um, just within the last couple of days that that I'm really excited to start sharing with people. But um, one of the questions I was going to ask you that the, the book, when it arrived yesterday, answered for me was if you're familiar with the work of Paul Levy um, and let's see, Dispelling Wetico, I think is, is the book. He, he um, was on the Limerest, one of the first episodes. Uh, that was the only time I spoke. Really? To okay. Yeah. I, I, need, I need to listen to that. Um, it, so I was following someone else's synchronicity. Um, they were having a bunch around the idea of Wetico or Wendigo, which is this sort of yeah. indigenous concept of, of evil as this non-local outside of time and another dimension phenomenon that interpenetrates this reality sort of through our psyche. And um, it's a really fascinating book. I'm just a, you know, kind of slow going with it, but um the, the idea of Wetico and, and how Paul Levy sort of updates it with the Jungian ideas and um, it, it's, it's just, it's resonated with me in a, in, in a way in which the information that I'm consuming, a lot of the podcasts I'm hearing, the synchronicities seem to be leading me on paths of discovery. Um, and they are, they're coalescing and cohering, I guess, um, in ways surrounding real life situations. And so it's not like a matter of a, um, a spiritual seeker wanting to just sort of ignore the real world around me. Um, it's literally through an investigation of a homeless man, I mean, Sean Stevenson, this, this man who was killed at a homeless shelter um, and my, my conversations with the family and the things that are happening as we are looking into what, what's, what happened to their family member are just powerful. And it, it's it's to the point where I'm almost starting to see, because I mean, you, you were saying the synchronicities, there's no bad, good, it's more how we interpret it. And I think there's a lot of accuracy in that. And I, because I think you don't wanna take away accountability from human will, human actions, but I'm starting to get a sense of two opposing forces um, working outside of time and synchronicities being a way that maybe loved ones that have passed, you know, people in our lives that are no longer with us in this physical realm can maybe impact outside of time. I guess I'm thinking of like interstellar, right? Uh, and Christopher Nolan, there's so much interesting stuff with Tenet and with the prestige and with like his work. And so, yeah, well, so this I, is where I start thrashing on the hook and just say, I just, this is why I want yeah. to throw out the whole 
any if there's any baby in the bathwater of synchronicism, I just want to throw it out too, because when, <laughs> when people start studying movies for signs of reality, then they, you know, that's what you were and, against. And that's, yeah, and that's what you seem to be re really reacting against um, in your in your piece. That you know, is this just an excuse to watch movies um, and to to be looking um, at all these external um, creative works of other creators, but the idea that that acts of creation are sort of accessing what you know the muse for lack of a better term and that that sort of act of creation might be a pathway in which these synchronicities directed by unseen outside forces have a way of impacting our own you know but well, this paths. is just life i mean this is just life so i mean i'm all yeah. in favor of detective work because you know existential detective work Right, right. Absolutely. But what I found the single mysticisms, they never went there. They never went to their own psychology. They never went to their own past trauma. And, and that once you start going into there, you could care less about you know, the, the, the excitement of following and tracking synchronicities because there's no end to them. Life itself, existence itself is uh, a tapestry of meaningful connections. So right. do you feel that you've reached a, a point of sort of inner peace and inner resolution with your own sort of past trauma and, and demons that um, you can just recognize those synchronicities as part of the, the tapestry of life and um, it no longer maybe directs you like, like it did in the past, if that's a fair thing to, to say? Uh, yeah, I don't know. I mean, obviously I was misdirected. I don't think I was ever particularly directed by... Well, I suppose I was. I mean, it's just a different strokes for different folks. So, I mean, I was following a number of leads in my early years, which yeah. have which have testified to with my books, uh, the Aeolus Cephas ones, mostly specifically. So, things to do with Castaneda, things to do with Strieber, things especially to do with Crowley, all of those kind of correspondences. Horus, uh, obviously six six six. There, um, that that kind of magical thinking that. I would say it creates a kind of feedback loop where we can end up short-circuiting our own nervous systems because we're imposing a, and I'm, I'm aware I'm risking this by going into Steiner, but yeah, I think yeah. that Steiner is very unique. I'm beginning to think that Steiner was probably the greatest thinker of the 20th century, which I know isn't saying much because I haven't really been <laughs> any good thinkers in the last few thousand years, but I really think he was outstanding in terms of what he was tuning into. Yeah. But anyway, that's part of the thing I've got to watch out for is getting lured by that bait again. But um, why was I saying this? Oh, yeah, superimposing a model of reality onto reality. It can never end well because reality can't be formulated or formalized. It can't be reduced to a number of correspondences which is what magic is all about magical yeah. thinking it's all about mapping these correspondences to create what to not coin but to use the phrase i coined the se a second matrix the and second then, matrix that's a fascinating term and it, it, it really it's that that because i just read that for the first time last night um and it's a helpful concept of this this um luring effect that you're describing um the second matrix that's yes i think that's very yeah. helpful so, I mean, how we, and this is back to trauma and the detective work, because the detective work that I eventually ended up doing, uh, first in the group with Stormy Weather Existential Detective Agency in 2010, 
And then, I mean, I, I was a bit confused back then as well. And then I started working with Dave Oshana and that piece in the sync books, the first time I ever wrote about him, interestingly enough, and I wrote that in about 2000. And oh, I think you're right, you're saying it's about 2009. Yeah, um, yeah. Uh, sorry, what was I saying? Oh yeah, the detective work trauma is, is that um, it's going back to the body. The, yeah. the orientation is back to the body. So um, uh, I kind of lost the thread there, but I, uh, there's some, some missing pieces <laughs> here. But the last yeah. part was that once you've used these clues to bring your awareness closer to the body, they become they're disposable right yeah and because the knowledge the real knowledge is in the body right it's not mental and it's more like memory i would say and certainly around trauma it is but i think even around reality you know what we really are in our soul essence i think that's also mem closer to memory than it is and so i mean this is Devo shana's model model if you like or his uh, description of enlightenment the journey of zero distance that it's not about adding, it's about taking away, back to the excavation. So if you're using knowledge and, and if you're following sinks and whatever to build these edifices, then, um, then essentially you just create, as I said, a, a second matrix. You, you yeah. want to escape the first matrix of social conditioning, trauma-based identity, you know, false identity creation, social conditioning. Um, but rather than undo it, which is, thing no one wants to do by definition because that means re-experiencing the trauma that generated the, the dissociative right. state in the first place then you build these new edifices that you can then migrate your awareness to yeah is what prisoner infinity is all about and transhumanism and you say well now i've transcended trauma because i've transcended the body right uh, a knowledge that you selected very subjectively, because it's an infinite sea of existence awareness, right. there's no end to knowledge. There's literally no end to the things we could know, right? Unless you limit it to the useful things as they write in the piece, like what, what vegetation is edible, you know, wh where a certain path goes, what, right. what kind of wood burns best, you know, basic survival stuff, whether you can drink from this stream or not. Th that kind of stuff is, is finite. But the other kind that's conceptual isn't finite, or at least it yeah. may as well not be. It may as well be infinite because nobody lives long enough to possibly. So what the old seers did, and it's ironic to refer to Castaneda here because he, he fell into the same trap, but still he mapped something. Yeah. He mapped a trap before falling into it. Was they, and, and this is what we're all, all occultists are doing and all of us are doing one way or another, they selected certain knowledge and gathered it as a means to increase their personal power and then use that knowledge and that power to create surrogate realities yeah. where they could exist indefinitely within. Now, everybody's doing that to one degree or another, but right. if you take, you can take it to these higher and higher levels yeah. and then you, you're more and more lost potentially. And that, so that really helps me. That really helps me understand the, the idea of building an edifice, because really that, that building is potential ego work and the ego work comes in and, and then can really just poison whatever droplets of, of self-awareness that might be given to you via these synchronicities. Um, and so the idea of using some of these synchronicities to return to where the knowledge is within the body, um, like has that potential positive benefit, but 
using synchronicities to, to build a new religion, all right, obviously is, is building um, the structures of some new delusion. Um, I've been having some conversations with the family of, of Sean Stevenson because there's some synchronicities that we've experienced. And I mean, the detective work really is understanding what happened to their family member. And, and so it's, it's, it feels very vital and, and placed within, you know, physical locations and within, you know, his physical body not being here any longer and, and uh, the people that are still here needing to, to move forward, but also needing to understand what's, what's happening. And um, an example of synchronicities for me and how it's led, I think to what you're saying is sort of returning to being aware of just your, your own, your own body and your own, um, maybe need to limit that infinite infinity out there. You know, I, I had this great experience where my mom was praying very hard for me, you know, because my, my self-medicating and alcohol use was covering up with just a lot of this anger. And, you know, I'm studying all this occult research um, and I'm getting angrier and angrier because people don't know what's going on. And so what's the, what's the use if I'm getting angrier and angrier and I have three kids and a wife and that should be the priority. And so if I'm just engaging in, maybe this form of reenactment, right? I was traumatized early on by whatever. And, and my seeking is just this form of reenactment to create, you know, this buffer separation from my family and from my own sense of my physical body. Um, and so as my mom was using, I think, you know, Christian prayer magic, which maybe Christians wouldn't think of prayer as magic, but that she was hoping that I would have some kind of experience that would um, open my mind and heart up to something larger um, you know, she told me to just ask for help, right? Just, just verbalize it. You know, might, might not believe it, but just verbalize it. And so I'm out walking my dog in the woods, um, you know, feel like an idiot and verbalize that I need help. And later that day, um, I'm with my oldest kid and we're um, in the Lego shop, right? So I'm, I'm building this incredible world of Legos. <laughs> it's, a, it's an external sort of narrative metaphor in a lot of ways, but um, I'm working on the, the Lego world and we're putting this bar that my kid had created you know, selling alcohol. And we're putting this bar into this restaurant. And in order to, um, to fit it in, I have to excavate this area of Legos. And so I'm digging out the Lego pieces and this green Lego piece pops up and I look at it and it says, God loves you. And it's this Lego piece out of hundreds of thousands of Legos. I mean, really, if you see my shop, Jason, it's insane. It's so many Legos in there. And it's this one Lego that my kid had gotten at church, you know, um, and it was just, it was the thing that I needed in that moment to kind of shake myself out of um, what I was, where I was going. And the result has been, you know, I am not drinking alcohol. I am being more present with my family. I'm trying to work through the stuff. So I'm not creating, you know, the same sort of uh, emotional issues, you know, trying to improve my own kids' abilities to, to manage the world. Um, because in so many ways, you know, we come from, families that, that don't have emotional literacy, that are caught up in their own, you know, issues. I know just from reading your work that, you know, that's part of the, your, your story and in, in resolving some of that personal trauma. Um, and so I guess, you know, if synchronicities are, are leading to better choices and, and healthier perceptions of the world um, and, and the, the love that really is out there for us to, you know, to choose, then that's a good thing. If it's leading to creating you know, more false paradigms or, or false constructions um, to, to continue to find places to hide. You know, we're, we're I, I guess we can be really clever creatures when it comes to hiding from the stuff that we don't want to face up with. That's why we maybe have to come down here for so many lifetimes, you know, so many different lifetimes to, to work this stuff out. Um, and so I, I think that your, your, how you've described that um, 
helps me understand that there are pitfalls, but there are benefits. And it really is all up to how you're making choices and perceiving this. So, so thank you, Jason. I appreciate that. <laughs> well, you're welcome. I mean, it's, a lot of it's to do with naming. And, yeah. you know, as you pointed out, synchronicities were only named 100 years ago by Jung and Morton Powley, you know, just a couple of guys who said, hey, let's name this thing that human right. beings have been experiencing for thousands of years. And actually the context there is significant because it was a reaction against materialism that Jung was a pioneer of uh, pioneers the word but he's certainly seen as a pioneer now uh, and in a certain sense he's a pioneer for the new age you could say so I'm quite suspicious of Jung in terms of where his ideas have led right and I think that's related to the fact that there was um I mean Jung was trying to have an, a, a cultural impact and was successful in that regard yeah who's trying to redirect culture down certain channels that he thought would be more benevolent, but it would also lift him up to a higher position, which they did. So that's always iffy. And so, yeah, naming synchronicity was part of his battle with Freud to prove that there was more than meets the eye to reality. Um, yeah. and, and, and so the context is, you know, we live in this materialist age. And I think we're seeing, and to certain extent, what I mapped with Prism Infinity, is where this ends up, is that we end up with scientism, we end up with a materialistic view of spirituality. Yeah. Um, and and sync, I think synchronicity and synchronicism, I think they have certain similarities because to this or certain yeah. ways in which you could see them that way too, because they're, I mean, your, your instant with the Lego, there's a number of ways you can interpret that. But also, uh, I mean, obviously one of them is the Christian way, which was with divine intervention. God put right. the Lego piece there so that you'd have that experience. And, and although that's much simpler and more childlike than the synchromistical view, which would have all this machinery of occult, metaphysical, blah, blah, behind yeah. It. Yeah. Uh, it. For that very reason, it may be healthier, right? Because it's you're really saying, well, I don't know. It happened, yeah. and and it and it lifted up my spirits, and mm -hmm. it seemed that it was part. I wouldn't. I would say as a risk in making it causal that that Lego piece somehow saved your soul, but the part <laughs> of your soul returning to you was experienced through phenomena, and one of the phenomena that you happened to notice was the Lego piece. But it's all. I mean, yeah. the bottom line that I'm getting to is it's it's. Um, so much of this or any narrative we create is going to be primarily mind driven right and you know before i say why that's a problem because i think it is uh I, I just should say that we don't even know what the mind is and that's the problem actually that we live in this thing that called the mind and we refer to it in a way that's disembodied and dissociated and can create all these narratives and realities. And we don't even know what the fuck it is. And we don't <laughs> even admit it. You know, like right. a Christian will say, oh, God works in mysterious ways. And we, you know, they, they will, yeah. there's, there's, there's a power or there's an honesty in a Christian perspective or a religious one that, that names God in a way that's truly humble. I'm not saying most people don't, but there's the potential there. Uh, we have this, we worship the mind and we don't know what it is, and but worst of all, we don't even admit it. Right. We actually think that we know what the mind is. Uh, we're not. We're prisoners. We're prisoners to the mind in some well, very deep it, way. So, so yeah. many of these different words 
are generated by the mind and they, they do create these traps. So it's not specifically synchronicity and synchronicism. Just right. most things you could name, I'd probably, uh, we might well, end up here. Yeah? Absolutely. Because, you know, ultimately the mind has to filter experience. Um, the mind creates narratives, you know, because the chaos is, is scary and the, you know, so, so really any narrative that we're creating is, is in a sense false, or it's based on selective, you know, selective moments. You know, we're, we're, we're making all these choices. And um, I, I guess there's danger in just be fully believing, like, like you say, causal, like it's not just this Lego was placed there by some outside entity. That's a simplistic kind of perception of it, um, which I totally agree with. And, and so trying to understand something, you know, <laughs> The mind is just is is trying like a muscle trying to sort of you know exercise itself to get stronger to deal with these phenomenon that maybe we are just needing to accept without putting language toward it because language is reductive. Um, that actually brings up in mind. Have you ever read the Alphabet versus the Goddess by by Leonard Schlein? Yeah, I read it during that same period. Actually, that, that I read the sync piece roughly. roughly. Okay. Because that, that seems to be, uh, it's been very helpful in, in this work of fiction that I've been working on that seems to kind of be manifesting in the real world, you know, that scenes that I wrote five years ago are sort of coming true and happening. So it, it kind of freaks me out a bit. But um, the alphabet versus the goddess was a big part of, I think, my understanding of, oh, um, how the reduction of words, of letters, these abstract symbols, you know, um, created this potential neurological shift to the sort of left side dominant part of the brain that kind of gave rise to the, the patriarchy control you know, mentality. And, and that um, when photographs and, and other you know, technology created um, images and films and all this stuff, that, that there, there's sort of a, a triggering of this long shift back to a, a balance where the right side and the left side can kind of find harmony. And so that's the masculine and the feminine finding balance. And it, it, it was an interesting concept for me. Um, I'm a man, right? And um, in our current culture, it seems that there's just this um, sort of, you know, the pendulum has swung in this other direction in which just, okay, the patriarchy sucks. So let's just, you know, hate men and um, misandry instead of misogyny. And, and, and um, I've had a conversation recently with Marisa Acachella. She wrote this fantastic graphic novel, um, The Big Shebang, where she uses, you know, comic or uh, the comic strip format to, to tell the Gnostic story of Sophia. And I just thought it was such a great example of, of another topic I'm interested in, which is Gnosticism. Um, I kind of came at Gnosticism through Philip K. Dick and a lot of his work, you know, we, we talk about materialism, you know, Philip K. Dick was able to, I think, you know, really even look at objects as something that can give you a divine sort of insight. Um, and I know I'm throwing a lot of stuff out there, <laughs> which is uh, something I tend to do in our in, in interviews, but um, that's sort of where I'm, where I'm coming at in, in a lot of the, the thinking of some of this stuff. Um, I, I'm an artist, I love found objects. I have found objects in thrift stores that I think resonate in good ways and bad ways. Um, that's led me to some insights that I don't want to get into right now because um, it deals with potential abusers and you know how, how some of that darker stuff that you mentioned at the beginning of, of our conversation manifests in communities like Missoula, um, which is a very liberal community um, in, a, in a very conservative state um, and really on the surface says that, you know, we're very inclusive, 
Um, but in the, in the actual reality of it, you know, I'm looking at how a homeless man was, was murdered at a homeless shelter and is, and is potentially being, it's being covered up. So there's this, a lot of interesting dynamics that play into my physical location in Missoula um, and, and sort of what these synchronicities have led me to, to look at here. Um, speaking of sort of the Northwest region and your time in Hope, British Columbia, um, how familiar are you with the, like the Northwest area, the region? Um, you know, the idea of Cascadia, this bioregion. Um, did the land itself really give you some positive feedback while you were living in this, in this neck of the woods in this region? I have heard about Cascadia, Cascadia any yeah. time in my life. It seems you know, politically and socially relevant currently, it might even yeah. be a movement to create it. Um, as far as the Northwest, it was interesting when I was working on 60 Mounts of Hell, the, the Brian Hayden material focused a lot on the Northwestern Coast Secret Societies. Okay, yeah. So that corresponded really directly with what I was looking at in Hollywood and the possibility of a continuum from prehistorical, yeah. say, secret society, um, political formations and ritual abuses and control oh, strategies and whatnot to all the way to Hollywood. And that, and, and where I lived in British Columbia, it, it is known for a lot of, a history of very dark, powerful sorcery. Right? The most powerful sorcerers are considered to reside there and possibly still do. Oh, interesting. Uh, yeah. So whether or not that was informing, mean, if it's true, I'm sure it was informing my experience at some level. At a conscious level, I was just, you know, I was just aware of the beauty of the area. And of course that, that informed my experience every day, surrounded by mountains and an right. intersection between two rivers. It's an incredibly beautiful area. I was yeah. looking at the, at the topography to get a sense of, of Hope, British Columbia, and I saw the you know the bodies of, or the rivers, and, and it seemed it seemed kind of similar to to Missoula, just because we have this confluence of rivers that come through our valley, um, and it, it seems that there that you may have touched on some some similar aspects of the region itself. Um, some of the things that I wanted to also mention, this brings up the idea of Leonard Cohen. Um, Leonard Cohen is a poet that I used to really, really enjoy reading until, um, you know, rigorous intuition and, and, and Diamond's um, phenomenal, courageous effort to sort of bring some awareness to the fact that Leonard Cohen very may well have been acting not just as a singer songwriter, um, but as an agent. Um, and, you know, he went to school in Montreal and that's a very well-known locale for, um, for MKUltra experiments. Uh, is it Cameron? I can't remember mm -hmm. the name of the doctor up there. You and Cameron. Uh, you and Cameron, right. Um, and, and so, you know, man, a large part of what I'm looking into as an artist is the responsibility of artists to be aware of how artistic space um, and the ambiguity that can exist within artistic space um, can sort of hide the, the predations of uh, sociopaths and dangerous, scary people. Um, and Leonard Cohen now for me seems to be really someone that used talents of, of language. Um, and I, in some other writing that I have, I've, I've said his poems feel not like poems, but more like boasts. Like he's boasting about things that have actually happened. Um, and so maybe if you could speak to, to Leonard Cohen, I know you're pretty aware of you know, Ann Diamond's work, um, but the role that artists have in maybe seeing how our, our fellow artists are, are potentially using tools and skills for 
nefarious purposes. Another thing I'll kind of mention, uh, a couple of days ago, I was out walking around in Missoula and I came across a street musician and I, I was talking to him and the conversation did not go very well. Uh, I was talking about, you know, synchronicities and magic and he was very defensive and kind of angry. And, you know, I'm like, you play music. Don't you understand the impact of music and the power of music? And, you know, there's magic there. He's like, that's not magic. And, and ultimately he, he said that um, my criticism of his knowledge of music was inaccurate because he's gotten laid so many times by playing music. And then I'm like, oh, okay. So you're just uh, using this to get screwed, um, to have sex and, you know, get material benefit from, from, the, from the music. So I'm, I'm really interested in my own work of understanding the role of the artist. And I mean, understanding how some of the art that I used to really appreciate the counterculture movements, um, Dave McGowan's work fucked me up. I mean, it, Dave McGowan's work really kind of screwed me uh, a bit um, because there just seemed to be so much more going on with, with LSD and the sixties and what was happening in Laurel Canyon. And then, you know, you talking about Aleister Crowley and sort of the Babylon workings and L. Ron Hubbard and just so many of these dark currents that seem to exist under the surface of, you know, music that I thought maybe was empowering, or at least it was my rebel yell, you know, as a, as a teenager that wanted to rebel against suburbia and rebel against dad and corporate America, you know, and wanted to smoke weed and drop acid and listen to, to music. Um, you know, I really have had to, to reassess in similar ways, I think that your process has had you reassessing, you know, where my artistic sentiments have come from and what my responsibilities are as an artist moving forward um, to be intentional in my acts of creation um, and to bring positive stuff to the world and not, not the negative stuff that I've been researching. So um, mm -hmm. again, a lot of stuff that I'm just sort of vomiting yeah. out of Chip. Yeah, it's a, it's a tangled web that we leave. And oh, yes. I mean, it brings to me the, this question that I'm considering since I moved to Spain and wanting to live a more simple rural life. At what yeah. point does nature become culture? Because clearly we can see the culture, the superculture, as I call it, in 16 Mounts of Hell is very yeah. anti-nature, it's anti-life. Anti so, yes. so you can't really argue for it for being natural or being a, a natural continuation of nature, more like an attack on it and a deviation from it, as we were talking right. about before with the dissociation from the body. Right. But on the other hand, any human beings living together or even alone in nature, they're going to, to build a house, they maybe create, make clothes for themselves, they cook. There's some culture, even animals have some right. you know, yeah. semblance of culture. So, so it's not as though we can entirely do without culture. Right. Um, culture, of course, refers to, I mean, it's the word also has to do with microorganisms, the, the bacteria that breathe. Right, right, yep, yep. Uh, and so I think we're seeing that, that culture is this virulent thing which has taken over the planet um, and, and colonized it. And so, and we are now not just products of nature, of the earth and of the sun, but of culture, the cultural right. products, which is like manufactured products in a certain sense. And that's my case about Leonard Cohen, in a certain sense, he was manufactured by MK Ultra, even to use the shorthand. Yep, yep. So then, and that, that's a sobering case study because Leonard Cohen seems so soulful, so talented, so charismatic. I know, I know. So wise. I mean, he just seems like 
one of the most positive examples of, a, of, an, of an artist from the last century did absolutely to me yeah. right so so that's one of the reasons I wanted to focus on him not just because there was so much evidence there although some who disagreed but because if if I could show with a sort of random example obviously it wasn't really random but I mean, it's still one per, one case taken out of hundreds of thousands, yeah. so much evidence for this uh, toxicity. Yes. Then one can extrapolate from that. Chances are, it's particularly the other stuff I argue, which is that culture is inseparate from socio-political hierarchies of power and control. So the culture right. that we get is the culture that we're given. Uh, even though it's also created bottom up by not, I mean, let's say individuals like Leonard Cohen, because he was from an aristocratic family. Yeah. So, but there probably are examples where it wasn't so obvious that they were favored from the start. They might have been grown a bit more whole cloth, but still they were helped, they were facilitated, possibly without knowing it. Yeah. You know, the culture promotes its own, those who are compatible with it. So, um, where I'm at now is you know, I don't want to identify as being a writer. I don't necessarily even want to write books anymore. Okay. You know, okay. I'm comfortable with the idea that I won't. I don't know if I will stick to it. It's not like so. I'm 16 gonna... Maps of Hell may be the last resolution. Sort of... Or, or there might be a book about, you know, the, the, to do with nature. And, and there probably yeah. will be more books in there. There will probably be more about nature, the body, and metaphysics, because that's where I'm, my attention's going. And but yeah. it'll be more positive and less social analysis. I'm not opposed to the act of writing, and I'm certainly not opposed to the act of singing and making music. That would be absurd. And dancing <laughs> is a wonderful right. thing. But the question is, again, when does nature become culture? So when does dancing, writing, singing, making music, making art, when does that become a form of self-promotion that promotes the culture, that promotes the self that is promoting itself? See right. what I mean? There's a yes. symbiotic complicity that's inseparable from the true conspiracy that I've mapped in my work, which isn't just about top-down controllers. It's about bottom-up, bottom feeders like us, you and I, consumers, right. who who imbibe the toxins and then spread them, right? yep. become carriers of the of the contagion. Yep. So that that means that the the pathogen that that I've mapped. In, in, in my books, you know, to this most virulent, latest iteration, you know, with, with Hollywood and the organized child abuse and things that were Jeffrey Epstein, yeah. things that are becoming visible now, can be traced prehistorically and metaphysically back to the Garden of Eden, I would say, how we yeah. want to interpret that story. In other words, it was in us from, from day two, not day one. We were created good but somehow day two or day three or day eight something went wrong but i mean way way before any any anything like culture or art existed like adam yeah. and eve were naked in the garden yeah? so so then uh to me it's the question this is about everything we do including this conversation we're having right. when when are we using effort and will and personal desire and agendas and ambition to somehow um rest from creation something that we can use to empower ourselves so so 
artistic creativity, uh, it's really an expression of the body and the soul that is inspired by the breath of life, I would say. Yeah. So when a person feels like a body, I should say, when it feels like singing, it will sing. I mean, the birds sing. We don't think of them as artists, but why not? Well, because they don't they don't have a record label and they don't charge money for their songs, right? Not, not yet, not yet. Not yet. Maybe, the, maybe the transhumanist birds will have a record label. Well, right, they'll microchip all the birds and then <laughs> and they'll copyright their songs, right? Everything can be co-opted and we've been co-opted. So yeah. who knows where it came from? You know, metaphysically, it's Satan and Satan, he took a wrong step and then we followed him thereafter. Yeah. So what's the right step? Well, Christ is the, the answer there this surrender, surrendering to the will of existence, to the flow of existence. And, you know, I learned guitar uh, in my 40s, and then I ended up giving it up. I got quite proficient. I got you know, a couple of videos on YouTube. I wrote a few songs. But I realized, oh, no, I'm, I'm turning this into a city. I'm turning in, you know, which yeah. is a eastern mystical power i'm turning into something that will extend my charisma and increase my charisma and so i can have more power in the world yeah and and it was obvious because i was learning all the songs and I had to memorize them and it, my, it got more and more kind of forced in a way i, I never got to the just joy of improvisation because i'm not a natural right. musician i can do that with writing and continue to write because i still have the joy of improvisation and my writing's always transforming with music i realized early on oh, i'm getting trapped here by an identity now i'm yeah. a music i'm an i'm a musician now although i never call myself that but that's just you know that's just a trick right i'm still identifying that way so so i've talked about this in a couple of podcasts with musicians one of them, after flying, he was saying that they, they would sometimes play to rooms where were, the audience was smaller than the band, and they were fine with that, uh, and that his primary audience was dead people anyway. He was aware that the dead were listening to his music. And he wasn't mystical. He wasn't over, you know, yeah. it, wasn't, yeah. it wasn't fanciful. It, it was, he was speaking in a very sweet, sort of intuitive way, but I felt he was also very serious about it. Yeah, uh, and, and I believe that's true. There are far more dead souls than there are live ones. Yeah. And they're here, they're present. I mean, talk about synchronicity and synchronicism. Many of those things are generated probably by, by um, uh, what's the word, restless dead, who just want yeah. to entertain themselves by luring us into these weird things or all they're trying to communicate there's distress. And, and you know, right? so there's, anyway, we don't have to go down that rabbit hole, but the point about yeah, we are embedded in this conscious realm of existence, not the universe. The universe is a rumor, but existence itself. Um, and when we're expressing creativity, where do those impulses come? Well, they might come from angels, they might come from dead souls, ancestors, they might come from demons, right. they might come from our own ego, uh, which doesn't make them bad. But anyway, um, and it's certainly becoming through the body. Uh, but if, you know, I say, you know, because I don't know what I want to say here, but um, I think if we, if we turn our own unconscious into a resource, that's a problem. Yeah. And that's related. If we're creating products for an imagined, imagined audience mm -hmm. uh, of people out there who, 
actually we don't really know if they exist any more than dead people do. I mean, right. yeah, if they're in a room, if you're in a room with them, yeah, we don't have to get solipsistic, you know, that we still don't know that they're really listening. You know what I mean? It's so much of it's just our own theory. So I mean, I've become more aware of this when I speak now because I do a lot of online events. That I, although I'm looking at the people and checking how are they responding because I'm not in a vacuum, mostly I'm tuning into my own body, my own sense of is this true right. for me to say this now? Yeah. So again, it's inner. Reality is inner. So to sing or to create art. I think it needs to begin and end with, with the self. And that's so I've tried to make my books like this. They're, they're for me, but I'm going to share them with you. Yeah. But they're, they're, they're the evidence of a process that I've completed by writing the book. So, yeah. right? so they're pointing somewhere else than the thing itself. You're, you're doing the inner work and you're letting us peek over your shoulder um, to, to watch the process um, unfold as it's, as it's unfolding. That's, I think that's beautiful and that really describes a lot of the work and the value that, that I've taken, I guess, from it. Um, I think synchronicities are being driven by the dead and other entities. I, 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 like, I like that rabbit hole. It seems to be where I'm kind of heading, um, but the ego seems to be able to just destroy and poison so much of, of these you know, insights, epiphanies. Um, are you familiar with uh, Bishop Pike? So Bishop Pike was a, a friend of Philip K. Dick. Yeah, yeah right. Um, and yeah. I thought his book was really interesting because his son committed suicide and he really went down this, this path of like checking with all these mediums, but then he was doing you know, TV appearances and it seemed like he, like he really allowed what might've been starting off as, as really wanting to, you know, make contact with his dead son but it just became so much more and he ended up dying in the, you know, in the desert in Israel. Um, but I think like some of those examples can be helpful in terms of what this can lead to in a bad way, you know, really send you off the deep end in ways that yeah. are not good. Um, yeah, I agree. I think even Dick, you know, he's one of the few cultural figures I wrote about and I was wholly positive and I wrote about the Bishop Pike thing. Okay, okay. I think it was very central to Dick's narrative. Yes. Yeah. But I have to say that the exegesis, the fact that he ended up writing endless pages and pages, and in a way, good, it was he was for no one to read, so it was just for himself. But yeah. still, my God, you know, he had three marriages, he could never even get it worked out how to live with somebody, and he, he spent his final years just try, trying endlessly to work something out yep. by writing it. It's, it's kind of more ad admirable than a writer who just keeps on writing books and become, you know, that, yeah. that, that they're just maintaining their legend or trying to, right? It's, mm -hmm. it's admirable that he went so inner, but the fact that he was still trapped, I think, by this need to try and work it out by writing. Yeah. Uh, there, there didn't seem to be any end point or any resolution for him. Uh, I'm not sure why I mentioned that, really. I, I think just what the point that you were making. I well, I think... It yeah. I, I think I was talking to someone, I can't remember who or the context, but, you know, oh, that's right. It was actually, at, it was about Aleister Crowley at a brunch a couple of weeks ago. Um, and I was talking about, because the, the person I was talking to seemed to be much more kind of pro Crowley and, oh, he's maligned and misunderstood. And um, one of the things that I said in terms of judging an artist or judging someone 
um, is that I would open criticism to myself and judgment on myself in terms of how the people closest to me were impacted by the things that I'm doing. So I have three kids and a wife. Okay. Was I able to maintain that relationship? What do my kids think about me? Um, you know, is the knowledge that I've acquired helpful if, if it's damaged the relationships of the people closest to me? And so um, without getting into all the details of someone like a controversial figure like Aleister Crowley, you know, I was telling this guy, like, just look at the impact of the people around him. Like, did he help the people around him or did they go fucking crazy? Um, was there death? Was there madness? Was there drug addiction? Well, I mean, yes, 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 yes. So, so I, I, I think that um, they're just, there's so much involved in these, like the creative power out there, but the ego seems to be this thing that just so quickly can turn it um, and invert it in that sort of, you know, satanic metaphorical way. Um, you know, another person that I've been thinking of uh, recently is someone like Lynn Wood. Um, you know, I don't want to get into the QAnon thing too much, but um, I mean, the QAnon, in my perception, is such a sophisticated psyop that um, ensnared so many people with a lot of mostly accurate information, but then fantasy, absurdity, ridiculousness, you know. Um, and I, I see someone like Lynn Wood, who, um, you know, was a lawyer who represented people and seemed to, to be able to function in the world, but then goes off the deep end, um, you know, taking on the Isaac Cappy QAnon mantle and, and just, you know, really going crazy. Um, with Linwood, Ed Opperman, another guy that, you know, a private detective, podcaster, uh, I remember him talking about Linwood and saying people within his own uh, law firm decided to leave because he was saying that he was Christ reincarnated and you know, he's Jesus Christ come again, although he's flawed and and I have this growing sense of the, the, the idea of the Antichrist, right? Um, just basically being the ego out of control, um, that we all have that potential Antichrist within us and the ego kind of activates it. And so any kind of genuine divine experience could get inverted and activated because the ego as part of our psyche, which is our mind that we don't even fully understand, um, you know, just can so quickly co-ops and transmute some of these positive things for the negative. And so the vigilance that seems to be required, um, if you're an artist wanting to put things that are resonating in on a positive vibration, um, you just have to constantly sort of maintain a balance and making sure that, you know, what am I doing today? Is, does the dog need to go out for a walk because the dog is like the dog's experience in this world is just as important as mine? You know, what about my kids? Did I, you know, spend all day in this metaphysical realm thinking about these things and my kid needed help with homework and I ignored, you know, my own child? Um, so, because another thing, again, I just vomit stuff out. Um, your concept of reenactment has been so helpful for me because it's allowed me to really self-criticize my own actions um, and to say, okay, you know, my dad was emotionally retarded and wasn't able to form like an emotional relationship Am I using technology and my phone and different things to create that same barrier with my own kids and reenacting what traumatized me or what uh, negatively impacted me? And I'm just, you know, passing that on to my own kids. Um, and your work has helped me disrupt, I think, some of the unhealthy patterns um, that I, I developed over the years um, to really come back to, the, to myself and the body and my own accountability and responsibility for the people closest to me, because um, if I'm an artist making and creating things for aggrandizement or um, material accumulation, that's bullshit. You know, in, in my mind, it's bullshit. But I think I run the risk every day of potentially doing that um, if I'm not careful. And at, at the same time, um, 
we need to make money to some extent. Um, this podcast, you know, I don't have any sponsors or advertisers. Uh, your book, 16 Maps of Hell, was an interesting process just to get it out in the world. Um, I was one of those, those people that um, I love books and ephemera. And so when I had the chance to, you know, spend $50 to get a few uh, uh, pages from your journal in addition to the book, I was so excited to, to do that. But it, it brings up that question of, you know, if we're doing this work and financial compensation seems to be a really easy way for, for the ego to kind of start getting activated, but it's also a necessary way of surviving in the world, you know, to getting, getting paid for your creative work, right? Um, so maybe speak a little bit about maybe the process of just 16 Maps of Hell coming out as a book, because, I mean, the publisher changed the terms of what they could do for you at the last minute. It seemed to be that process was quite I guess I understand maybe how you don't want to write books for a while after after 16 maps of all coming out. I don't think it was well. I mean, I think yeah. it was. I think it's the it's been the most satisfying experience of writing and publishing a book. Okay, uh, okay, good. Um, in in every way, and reading it back as well, I'm, it's a little early to say, but I think I'm I'm certainly as pleased with it as, as Prisoner of Infinity, which is to say, anything I've written. Okay. But I think even a little bit more, I and mean, it's bigger. But anyway, <laughs> um, I think the thing about, I mean, the thing I want to zero in on, because you said an awful lot of stuff, and I think there was more yeah. interesting stuff to respond to earlier on about the ego. So I think yeah. I can tie the two together. That The thing that stood out about 60 Maps of Hell was that it was the first book I wrote with a specific audience in mind, not a demographic. I'm... I mean specific individuals, as you know. Right. I knew right. I knew your names, I knew your addresses, I knew you know, yes. some of you I knew personally. So I was able to feel that, and th and this has been central to knocking something on my head that probably does relate to the reenactment compulsion. Mm -hmm. For example, trying to get my father's attention by being right. a writer, uh, which obviously ties into trying to get success and status mm -hmm. by being a writer, not just writing books, but publishing, but then getting them reviewed by the New York Times. All of that, it's easy to see without too yeah. much, you know, of Dr. Freud in there, how <laughs> those kind of ambitions might be fueled by having a ne negligent father who just never gave me his blessing. And that's true in my case. So what seems to have resolved itself with this last project which is related to the fact that that my that human beings helped me to publish it by supporting it. So I knew that it was wanted. I knew that I got this validation from human beings, not from the New York Times or or Amazon sales ranking, or just from actual human beings saying, I really want to read this book. And then after when yeah. so I haven't had much feedback, but I've had some people who've read it, I'm still hearing from people who are finally receiving it, you know, so it's still ongoing. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then I've noticed that since I moved to Spain that I, it seems, and it seems amazing to me if this is true, but it does seem as though I'm no longer craving after recognition. And I get tingles when I say that, hopefully that means it's true, but certainly even the thought that it might be true might be enough to give me tingles because, uh, I mean, that's the kind of freedom that's yeah. a, that to be free of that. It's not the ultimate freedom, but it's wow. It's a big step because, you know, my whole life has been driven by that. Um, and and it's because 
I mean, to bring it to the ego, that a healthy yeah. ego doesn't need validation, but an unhealthy one does. And the more damaged it is, the more validation it needs, the more driven it will be to get that validation at, you know, hell or high water by hook or by crook, right? Yes. So uh, even to the point of Jeffrey Epstein or uh, Jimmy Savile, you know, pick your sociopath, Adolf Hitler is, you know, the, the whipping boy of the, of the century. <laughs> so I don't usually use him, but, uh, well, Obama, let's say, somebody that people like. Um, uh, anyway. Yeah. People in power, they got there because they were driven by damaged egos. Mm -hmm. And I do want to zero on this ego thing because uh, I've been listening to Steiner, not his voice, but readings from his lectures about how the ego is that within us that is the divine, the presence of the divine within us. The divine okay. spark is an Austin yeah. term, but is also the ego, the sense of, of existing, yeah. self-awareness. Um, so everything that is good within us is indistinguishable from everything that is bad. So what's right. the difference between an ego that, that is, a, is um, a, a holographic fragment of the divine, let's say, it's a bit of a new age description, but anyway, I like it, I like it. the divinity, yeah. uh, and one that is a sociopathic diamond hard driven you know abuser of other human beings well first of all as we've already covered one's traumatized and the other's either wasn't traumatized or it's healed itself mm -hmm. but in terms of how that ego perceives existence and how it is in existence i'd say it's the difference between an ego that feels completely separate from and an ego that recognize an enlightened ego which is david shannon's definition well one of the ways he describes enlightenment from his experience, uh, the awareness that we didn't, don't exist separately. Right. That we are connected in every conceivable way, physically, biologically to the ancestors, but physically also by the earth and the air that we breathe and so on. Uh, psychologically, we're entangled, uh, you know, we're, we're in this newer sphere, if you will, of shared uh, language and shared memories and shared experiences. Uh, emotionally, uh, energetically, etc. You know, at every yeah. level, all the way to the deepest, highest level, which is spiritually, which is well, it's one human energy field where mm -hmm. we're inside an organism, whereas right. we're as inseparable as the cells in your body are inseparable. So, so that brings it to your point about the real measure of a human being is in his relations to others. Right. How others and and the, the inverse, the satanic inverse of that is this idea of a cultural pioneer like Crowley. I want to go when I mention the name there because yes, both right. of these people defend yeah. him. Um, but anyway, I, I don't want to be like that about anyone, you know, who is right. a wounded soul who needs our love, right? But uh, that idea of, of the rarefied individual, um. It doesn't matter how they treated people because they were more important than that. They were seeding the culture. They were creating culture. This, that, this whole idea is symptomatic of a satanically inverted relationship to existence that yes. is uh, amplified or exemplified by our culture. Our culture is the, the tissue of symptoms of that, mm -hmm. you know, of our internal disconnect from 
that felt sense that we're all interconnected, which allows us to neglect one another and pursue these selfish goals yeah. uh, that are supposedly selfless because they're all about making the world a better place. That's the final irony. What drives right. the sociopath today? Making the world a better place. Oh, the, the, the road to hell paved with good intentions seems exactly, to be yeah. such a applicable, you know, point of um, our, our current, our current paradigm. Um, yeah, that's, it's, it's so interesting to, um, to think in terms of, uh, I guess, the, the measure of success and in, in how our culture defines that um, and how people that are, that are being, that are feeling themselves drawn to this higher vibration that are tuning into something um, seem to be turning their backs, you know, on in, in a good way. Uh, and I think I got this from your articulation, the idea that unity consciousness, you know, as you're evolving to this higher vibration, um, you, you don't act out in ways that, that the lower, you know, vibration sort of fear, anger, you know, folks do, because you understand if you do something to someone else, you're doing it to yourself. And this, this framework helped me understand and actually have some empathy for monsters, because I think your work holds out this redemptive space for the worst of the worst of, of mankind, of humans. Um, and, and this, this idea, um, oh, where was it going now? I'm losing my train of thought a bit. Um, but the, the space of redemption um, being there for, for even some of these terrible individuals, because the under, if you understand them instead of just you know, criticizing or demonizing them. Like we don't necessarily want to spit on the ground every time we, we hear a certain name, but um, to give them the space of understanding is amazingly generous, I think, from, um, from the work that you've been able to do specifically with, with Crowley. Um, and, and to really say, you know, they are acting out on this will, do what thou wilt, because um, they're at this lower vibration. Um, they want the full range of will you know, to be able to do whatever they want, to, to get whatever feeling for themselves. Um, and as you evolve, hopefully to a higher vibration, you, you just stop doing that kind of stuff because you realize it's pointless. If you want to harm yourself, you can harm yourself. But, you know, this unity consciousness that seems to be something that is the choice for us now, this opening up um, is a beautiful choice in my humble opinion. Um, and I'm excited to see more people sort of in my own life gravitating towards that um, because we have to heal, right? We, we, we have to do the, the, the healing work ourselves first if we want to have any other impact out there that's positive. I mean, it really, the work has to be done first inside. Um, what, mm -hmm. One of the things a professor of mine said to me that's always been very helpful is that you spend the first 20 years of your life getting fucked up by whatever influences, usually your family, and then you spend the next 20 years of your life trying to rectify the first 20 years. And if you're lucky, by the time you're 40, you can maybe start being a, a whole human being. I think that's pretty actually, you know, generous. It's, I would, yeah, that's generous. I would it say, takes more time than that. It takes much more time than 20 years. My yeah. 18 things I wish I'd been told when I was 18 that I made for my niece a video. One of them was you spend the first 40 years of your life, years of your life getting everything wrong. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And then yeah. you spend the next 14, 40 years I can't remember what the saying that was, but anyway, um, you have a forty, you have a forty forty equation instead of a twenty. Yeah, yeah, because yeah. I would say you spend his first twenty years getting fucked up by the world, yeah, and then he spend the second twenty years repeating the same things by trying, like we said earlier, you're trying to resolve those fuckers in all the wrong ways, making yep, it yep. worse, and then if you get to forty, as I did, and life begins, then you can start looking at all the ways you did it wrong 
and track that back to what was done to you. Because that, yes. that's the thing. If it was all about just what was done to us, it would be relatively simple. But right. things are done to us and then we internalize them and we and this happens before we're 20. Obviously, this happens at the age of five. A kid will start internalizing that it's bad because it's being told it's bad or it's being abused by someone that it's supposed to trust and so on. So it starts very young. I mean, even yeah. before that age, we internalize the things that are done to us and start doing them to ourselves. Um, so, yeah, so that's the problem. That, that's the problem. And it, so it isn't about the other. I mean, you can't, uh, you can't resolve your own trauma by blaming your parents or the, if, the, if there are abusers and you know who they were and they weren't your parents uh, because uh, the buck doesn't stop there because then right. you say, well, my parents were only that way because something happened to them and so on and so on. So we've got this whole ancestral charge that we're carrying. Yeah. Charge in both senses, actually, electrical charge, but also like a bill that somebody's going to have to pay at some point. Right. And we are, you know, the, the piper is coming to be paid now, whatever the expression is. We are at that at the, that crossroads now, yeah. it seems to me, where you're saying there's, there's a choice to be made. There's only two choices, I would say. Uh, it feels like that. It really feels it, like that. Yeah. And, and there's, it's also if you don't make a choice you are making a choice so yes. it's almost as though there's only two choices the choice to make a choice or the choice just to go along with the satanic momentum because we are in the satanic slipstream right now and I, don't, yeah. I don't want to use that word too often i don't want to use it at all really but i don't i don't know what else to use it and i have to use and i have it occurred to me just yesterday that i never used to use the word evil for yeah. precisely the reasons you said that I don't think anything should be condemned. Right. But I think that God or nature existence does cast things off. So although it may not be, it's not condemnatory in the way that we would do that in our minds, you know, as human beings or as, as egos, as in, because we just can't deal with it. I don't think God's right. just saying, sorry, I can't deal with you, go away. I yeah. think God's saying, sorry, I can't work with this. It's just this, this substance is, is lukewarm. There's no way I can't make ice cream and I can't make soup. Yeah. It just gets thrown out of the kitchen. Right? Yeah. So, it, so there, is, there is a reckoning where it's becoming more and more essential to identify, and it's not to blame it, but to identify evil as what it is, starting with ourselves or, or at least, the continue recognizing if we see evil in the world, it's mirroring something in ourselves. Always, yes. yeah. always. Right? I, you know, I was having a conversation with someone um, just yesterday and I was referencing your work in terms of the, the redemptive path potential, maybe for even the, the worst of the worst. And the, the woman I was talking to said, well, she really felt that, like you say, there are, there are some elements that are going to be cast out because there's a need to cast it out. So um, whether that's actually an entity with a soul, you know, uh, I, I hold out the possibility that there could be clones without souls among us, um, other dimensional entities, you know, I, I, I hold up those, those possibilities because I, I strongly think that some level of, of alien disclosure is going to be happening soon um, to, to really confuse us and distract us in a lot of ways. Um, and so I'm kind of trying to prepare my sense of how to talk about it and explain and describe things without sounding totally crazy because um, satanic inversion is a term that I cannot get away from either. 
um, you know, I understand distinctions between like Satanism being the, the biker thing and Luciferianism being the more sophisticated elitist thing. And I'm fascinated by the process church and, you know, how they were interpreting sort of Jehovah and, you know, um, Christ and all this stuff. It's, it's fascinating to me on, a, on an intellectual level. Um, but right now it feels like, like you say, not making a choice is a choice. Um, and there just seems to be more, more significance with, with all choices that we're making. I mean, choices in our daily life, you know, um, seem to have not more of an, just more of an impact, but also if you're putting things out there, it seems to come back at you faster. Um, it's, it, it just, that seems to be the feeling that I'm having and, and the conversations that with people that seem to be tuned into this seem to be also reflecting that, that there's this acceleration happening in a good way, but also, um, you know, it seems like stuff is coming to the surface and, and stuff is being exposed. So it's, it's an exciting time. You, you don't want to necessarily feel too good about a time in which so many people are still trapped in, in cycles of suffering. Um, and that, that there is real death happening and real misery, you know, real, real pain out there. Um, and so I don't ever want to minimize any of that. But um, I know that I feel encouragement as I'm having conversations like this today with you, that, you know, positive things are possible, choices for the better can be made, um, and that there's love out there expressing itself if we look for it, if we open ourselves up to it. Um, I think there's, there's just a lot of magic happening right now that, that gives me a lot of encouragement, so. Mm -hmm. Well, it's as simple as breathing. I'm gonna be plagiarizing David Sharner again here, but I keep name dropping him. Anyway, with a reason, with a purpose. Yeah, yeah. Um, but so he's been talking about breathing a, a lot recently. And the fact that even if we can't get to nature, nature's right here. Every time we right. breathe, we're experiencing nature. And even if the air's polluted, we're still, our bodies are part of nature. Yeah. And so this is, this is an inherent goodness in all human beings, which is a cliche, but I'm using it in a novel fashion, which is that unless speculate synthetic clones and, and I don't rule that out either but if if they are human beings then they are made in God's image which is to say that they are created um, in a pristine way by nature okay there's all kinds of medical interventions and technology now that's that's compromising things a bit like the food that we eat but still mm -hmm. a basic you know cellular level a human body is more or less what it was a few hundred years ago if not a few thousand years ago and uh yeah. It, it, it is part of nature so that and that um yeah that inherent goodness is something that's it's actually not that difficult to share it does yeah. seem as though and it's ironic we're having this is mediated through technology like most of my conversations these right. days right. but the, the the sense of a connection isn't dependent on the technology i don't yeah. think the our being aware of it is but the connection yeah. itself exists independently of the technology. Yes. Um, I wanted to say something else, however, though, about um, what was it to do with? Oh, I, this is something to do with Quinon. Um, yeah. Well, the like how are we connect, how are you and I connecting? We're connecting at a mental level, and we're talking about lots of interesting things, but you've, you've brought it to a more um personal place where there's a connection yeah. of shared respect a shared affection there's a possible you know, human connection two human beings two human yes. souls meeting Absolutely. and then something can come out of that 
Right? We don't know what it is. And um, I do believe this is happening in the world. I don't believe it's happening on a large scale, however. I'm not optimistic about this. Yeah. And I think that something like Quanon is an example of a, well, controlled opposition is an obvious thing, quote unquote, but of a counterfeit right. of the way that people can come together. And I think that even you or I, you know, everyone is in some at some risk of a certain point of, because it keeps, you know, Satan's ploys, right. they keep becoming subtler and more sophisticated of necessity. Yes. And it's our own doing, you know, we're, we're complicit with this. Um, we will do any, we'll use any kind of trick we can to avoid a full awakening, to stay you know, asleep in yeah. our pods, because it's comfy there. So I think that, yeah, one of the things about Quanon, it doesn't really matter if the information's good. It's, it's the framing for it. Yeah. So I said about Alex Jones and David Icke, lots of good information, but who wants to drink out of a, you know, a, a toilet bowl, right? That's, that's got a turd floating in it. You don't. It doesn't matter that the water that's actually coming in there is good. It's not good now that, right? And and so, sorry, Alex and David, you know, I have a certain well, amount the, of respect the, for what you do, but the point yeah, remains, yeah. it's polluted, it's tainted. And yes. the point I just wanted to zero in on though is that it's not, it's it's more subtle than um, whether somebody's compromised or a shill or a sire, it's to do with how addicted are we to the knowledge and the information and the, the idea that somehow we're going to come together and work together and find affinity and resolve this and make the right choice by figuring out what's going on in the world. It's not, right. not going to happen. You know, for me, working out what was going on in the world, I was always aware that I would never be able to reach closure yeah. if I was looking outside, but I might be able to resolve something for myself. As I've just mentioned, this desire to get recognition, for example, seems to be resolving itself. The desire to expose, as you were mentioning earlier, what's going on in the world to ignorant people, that seems to be resolving itself. So yeah. that's not a small thing. And that, I think that that's leading to, even though we're having a conversation here, lots of words, lots of concepts, still, the, the quality may be subtly different, um, that to a place where we're not dependent on referring to the world the whole time. Yeah. That yeah. we're moving more and more, our orientation more and more away from the world in the Christian sense, as in, you know, Satan's domain, yeah. to the inner king, the kingdom that's within us. That I believe that's a true analogy for an, for an orientation. We're, we're trying to shift our orientation away from, from, from the, the snares of Satan, which are endlessly fascinating, to the, the, the treasure that we carry within us, which is our, yeah. you know, the breath of life, our bodies, our souls, our, our individual being, right here, right now. And if we can connect, yeah. you know, you and I, two people can connect. There's a guy with a mask behind you. What the hell? <laughs> I object. Yeah. Uh, it looks like you're gonna get mugged. Uh, I, know, I know when, when we when we go outside of the door, there's the public space in which we um we will go along with the the rules right. asked asked of us so that other people feel comfortable. Sure, um, no, you don't have to explain it. It was a throwaway. No, um, no, it's funny. It's funny. It's funny. So yeah, and I got I got derailed, but I think I, I pretty much that was there that that those are the connections. Yeah. This is Dante's description of heaven. That heaven is made of the the soul, connected souls, yeah. and souls connect that is the fabric of, of heaven and 
And that's the only heaven that we need to have any interest in bringing about on this planet. It's got nothing to do with social structures, in my opinion, even though you might run a thrift store and help people who are hungry, but that's not social reform. It's not just being a human being. Uh, And the real thing that you were saying, giving people money might not help them. Even giving people food in a blanket might not help them. Right. Right, right. Actually helping people physically might not help them at a soul level. So I think I think there's a there's a need to orientate ourselves in a more and more subtler sense of what constitutes goodness, uh, what constitutes help, what constitutes meaning, yeah. away from physical things and into into the spiritual realities or the metaphysical realities, which are so far beyond our, our mental capacities to understand. And this is why I think there's a, there's a value in going into it, although there's also a trap. There's a certain point, bringing it maybe back to synchronicism and those things, a certain point, if you, if you start to um, introduce your mind to enough of those layers of reality, your mind has to throw in the towel. It has to surrender and say, I, yeah. cannot, I cannot navigate this realm. I, 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 I give up, I quit, I admit defeat. I give, uh, you know, I give dominion back to my soul or the soul. Right? Well, I said. think it, I think it will happen. Well said. Mm-hmm. Um, I, and one one point before we kind of uh, reach maybe uh, conclusion and, and wrapping this up, um, it's interesting that you say you feel less of a need to engage, you know, on that sort of uh, maybe insecure ego level because I've noticed something similar. Well. I mentioned to my wife that, uh, that, uh, someone had posted a podcast and they criticized it, you know, in a comment and I didn't respond to the comment. I looked at it and I'm like, yeah, uh, what's the point of responding to that? They, you know, um, but previously, you know, I've been in plenty of flame wars where you're in those, you know, comment threads trying to impose your, you know, your argument, your will on others. And, and my wife, I guess, saw it as a bigger, a bigger deal than I did because she's like, you didn't comment. And I was like, no, I didn't see the need. She's like, are you really? And I'm like, no, it, it wasn't. It was kind of pointless to comment. And, and she recognized that that was a big deal more than I did. And so, but now clearly she points it out. I'm like, okay, yeah, this is great. I, I don't want to, to engage at that level. Um, it's a waste of time. And if I'm, if I'm genuine about what I feel like is happening within me, I don't need to actually do that, you know? Um, so it's, it's nice to hear that sort of valid validation that, you seem to be hopefully experiencing something similar um, as you're moving forward in a positive way. And so as you're moving forward, how can people um, sort of find you or engage with the work um, with Dave Oshana and, and what's, what's happening? Um, Cause I'm sure if, if people listen to this and, and you know, want to, to find more information, um, what are some ways that people can. Yeah. Well, hopefully, I mean, one person, I always say, well, not always, but I have said recently that, you know, if, if something I do reaches one person, then it's worth doing. As long as it didn't take too long. Uh, (laughs) Realistic expectations, right? And make sure your expectations are realistic. Yes, but also it's back to this subtle thing because we don't really know what's going on at the deeper levels of existence. So we don't really know that there's even 8 billion people out there. I mean, there could only be 144,000 of us out there. This was my last stormy weather. I posited a, a theory that actually there's only 144,000 of us and they've created all these tulpas on the planet so we won't be able to find each other. Oh, but anyway, that was a long time ago. 
that yeah. I came up with that theory. I have no idea. I did believe it at the time, I think, but now it's, <laughs> it's, well, it's on the shelf. But anyway, uh, point being is, is that, yeah, numbers is a losing game. So just, yeah. I don't really know. Do, we do know if there's a deep connection and if it has a future, let's say, it's not quite the right term for it, but if it, if it has real potential that might develop into something, yeah, you know, collaboration, let's say, to use an easy word. So that's where I've been going now into more collaborative realms. Yeah. And so what that has mean in the practical terms, I created this play wall at my blog, at my website. Uh, I've announced the end of the limo list. So it's 50, number, number 300. Oh, oh wow. you didn't okay. know. I guess you didn't listen to the last couple. Um, I yeah. haven't had, yeah, I haven't. I did not realize that all. Well, so that's good. So people can find out through this, this way uh, as well if they haven't heard the announcement. Yeah. So, so that'll be sometime the end of July or August. Uh, I will okay. be finishing up the limo list. I don't know if I'll still do blog posts, I imagine, from time to time. Yeah. But um, the idea of the play wall is, is that um, if people want to, to, to still get material or see some of my material, not all of it, because I'm still putting some of it out in the public, then they need to meet me. I need to know who you are, yeah. what you want. Because otherwise, I mean, this is also to do with the responsibility of the communicator, what well, is the word artist. Uh, we want to be able to gauge the effects of what we're doing. This is why, in my opinion, nobody who has uh, hundreds, never mind thousands of followers, quote unquote, can be ethical or can know that they're doing good. Because if you can't check with each of them individually, Interesting, and, yeah. And, the, and your, it's nice to signal the ratio. The more people you're trying to communicate with, I mean, dumbing down is, is the simple version. You yeah. have to make your message more and more diffuse and less and less customized. It's, it's just inherently corrupting, just as the idea of leaders is inherently corrupting. The, the whole idea that there could be, you know, the hierarchies of human beings is, is just, there's something wrong with it. Right. So, so my... Uh, trajectory has always been and I've tried it in the past and succeeded but I, I'm trying it again now in a new way is to yeah, bring people in who it's sort of like levels of initiation in a way you know, how interested are you how committed yeah. are you if this is just entertainment or more information well I'm glad to be of service but doesn't you know whatever we might be able to you might be able to comment a few things and make me feel good, my ego feel good, but <laughs> but it's not going to be a productive relationship. There's not yeah. going to be um, creation, right? So I had the sexual imagery there, but I didn't make it explicit except with my gestures. Um, <laughs> so anyway, this is, was a very long and elaborate answer. It's like, what could people do? Yeah. Um or what, what, what am I up to that they might be interested in? Well, beside the podcast, which will keep going for a while, a few more months, mm -hmm. um, I'm running these affinity groups, which are online meetings, uh, not just for people who are interested in Deva Shana, who does online events usually every mm -hmm. Sunday, um, but just people who are interested in what I'm doing. There's, okay. a, there's various different groups and none of them are specifically Dave focused, but there are people who've come through Dave as well. So that's yeah. definitely one of the focuses. Um, there's a men's group, there's a mixed group. There's one my wife runs, which is about charge, handling negative charge. 
Um, and then there's one that I'm maybe going to do if there's enough interest more. Uh, it's just for you know, introduction to people who've never met me before. So that's that's Excellent. my orientation. And that hopefully potentially is laying the groundwork for real life in 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 nature encounters if if and when I get set up here in Galicia and with a property that can work as a retreat center yeah. uh, people come for work retreats work holidays uh, and or spiritual retreats for workshops uh, social deprogramming de uh, whatever else we can come up with and invent yeah. between us uh, you know human beings getting together in nature like bees to create honey what what else what other future is there for us essentially if this yeah. the ship of civilization is going down or worse it's going into some suspended uh trans temporal limbo where it's going to last for millions of years in, in you know in a surrogate reality or both but whichever the case we don't want to be on it i hope yeah. anyone listening to this podcast is realizing that the you know, the life of Netflix is not a life worth living yeah. and that there's less and less alternatives. And yeah. so that's what I'm, I'm trying to prepare my own virtual leading to actual arc for the coming reign of fire, mixing yeah. my metaphors here because an arc would just burn, wouldn't it? So yeah. I don't know if it's a spaceship or what rides, what could r ride the uh, forest fire? I do not know. Obviously, I can't <laughs> actually plan for the apocalypse. Right. I'm just doing my little bit to try and be in tune, connect to people who are also tuning in yeah. to the, the human life force and uh, discover things together. You know, we're working on this excavation discovery process together yeah. to discover the philosopher's stone, the most precious thing in existence, the human soul, buried by years of abuse and misuse and deception and exploitation, but still alive somewhere yeah. under the and, dirt. And, and colonized, colonized by this predatory phenomenon that um, that takes serious, serious work to to dislodge yourself and dislodge your soul from that detritus that's that's piled up. Um, it's it's difficult work, but it's so it's so worth it. Well, Jason, you've been so kind and generous with the time that um, you have shared with me today. Um, I would love to include some links in in the show notes, like always, like the podcasters do. I say that so I sound like a real podcaster. Um, mm -hmm. There will be links in the show notes. Um, but but any links that you're interested in in having people have access to to follow up, um, if they do feel I guess so called to 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 explore um, what you've been what you've been doing. Um, so I, yeah, well, I would say the simplest route is the direct route as the crow flies. My yeah. first website, Crow Enterprises, is uh, is this contact me. So it's Jason with a U at protonmail.com, and so I would just say. Because all of this stuff, as we've been touching on a number of times, it's all, in a certain sense, it's all kind of detritus and residue, the books, yeah. the podcasts, the website, all of it's going away. In the end, all that will be left will be, you know, human souls that are either connected to each other or plugged into the great AI harvest <laughs> device, right? So, so then if there's anything that a listener has heard here today that sparked something, then, yeah. then I would say... Uh, use that spark to to light a fire send me an email and share what it was that it sparked in you and maybe yeah. it will spark something in me because we're all 
helping each other in that way if we're responding there's this call and response now the yeah. bur- you know the, the fire the civilization is burning down and we're just trying to find the exit so as many of us can get out and we yeah. need the means to communicate and signal and and share the information so that we we understand the situation fully in time to get out yeah. so we're all valuable to each other those of us who are aware that the ship is burning and sinking in an ocean of oil. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, and the, the people locally that I've connected to in meat space and real space um, that I've met recently, I mean, it's, it's, it's so validating to actually to run across someone that's, that's on this similar path. Um, because I think, <laughs> I tried to be optimistic, but I, I agree that as I'm looking out there, I wonder how many people are sort of awake and attuned to, to certain things because, um, you know, it, it, 144,000, I think maybe that would be an optimistic number if, if there's that many, you know, globally that are, that are waking up to stuff. But I also wonder sometimes if there's a, an othering or dehumanizing process that we all can, you know, fall victim to sometimes. Um, in, in sure, well, there is in the media, but then most of the people we see is through media. Like, I have right. 144,000 people, right? So, yeah, sure, almost everyone I met felt like a real person, but <laughs> maybe I just meet, you know, I, I learned to avoid the tulpas. Who knows? Right. right. But anyway, right. we're not, not jumping to any conclusions there. Um, I had another thought, but I think it's gone. But anyway, yeah, it's good. good well, time. it's been it's been a, a while that we've had a chance to be to be talking today. Are there any last thoughts that you'd like to share? On right, the actually, the last thought I forgot was we managed to get through a whole conversation without mentioning COVID once. I think we deserve some kind of medal. Yes, I and I actually I didn't consciously not talk about it, but I didn't want that to be a part of the conversation. I was sort of like, there's there's too many other things um, that I wanted to talk to you about. Um, that I think would indirectly kind of relate to that um, because, you know, it, it seems like there's this real effort to get ahead of, of an awakening that's happening um, and to really amp up the fear um, and, and to keep that kind of lower vibration going. Um, and it's been a lot of work for me personally to move through the fogs of fear in the early months of realizing what was happening. Um, but now that I've come through some of that fear and I'm connecting to humans on this amazing, amazing journey, it's, that part of it seems to be still important to pay attention to, um, but not to focus on it because it draws in that anger and, and sort of fear. Um, and when I focus too much on that, I find my own family relationships suffer, you know? Um, and yeah. so, I mean, it really has been um, kind of brilliant in, in the way that this has been devised, I think, um, to, to micro fissure human relationships because, um, it's happening everywhere within, within families um, and friend circles. You know, I, I talked to an artist here um, that was just basically her, her circle of friends made her feel crazy, you know, um, and was like, I'm not alone. You know, we had a conversation that was really validating because for her, she felt like people that she used to rely on as a support network are no longer there. Um, so I think a lot of people suddenly have realized that maybe things that they thought aren't being shared by others in a way that now is really you know, separating people in these really bizarre, terrible ways. So, I mean, there is a lot of strife, strife going on. And I think that's just creating more urgency for people tuned into a different vibration to seek out validation that we're not insane. Um, there's some positive, amazing things happening. 
Um, yeah, well, that's very central to what I would say that I'm participating in with the yeah. online meetings. There's this global gaslighting is going on, and it's hard to tell the difference yeah. between gaslighting that's maliciously intended by people who are kind of too sane in a way, as in they're just calculated yeah. deception, or gaslighting just crazy people. They're just crazy people telling you that you're crazy, and right? That's gaslighting yeah. too. So anyway, global gaslighting. And yeah, the temperature's rising and it's becoming more and more essential to spend our time right and use our energy and direct our attention in the right ways, which primarily I'd say is, is spending time with people, not who are just going to validate us and agree with us, but who are seeing things similar to what we're seeing and also seeing things that we're not seeing, but that are complementary, and just having us as... as often as possible a positive experience of being with other human beings yeah i think that that's what's going to see us through this more than anything else perhaps it's I, well, good relationship to our yeah. bodies and nature those three things then i think i yeah. so agree i so so absolutely agree and i think that's a beautiful point to, to end this conversation on um Thank you so much, Jason Horsley. I will be including again, the links to follow up, but it sounds like people better be tuning in to some of the stuff before um, the podcast and some of the, the, the evidence of the, your material attachments maybe disappears and transitions to, to the, new, the new work that you're doing, so. Right, it transcends to the higher dimensions, leaving no traces. Exactly, exactly. Well, I'm gonna go ahead and um, hit stop recording now. So thank you, Jason, and I'm sure if, if there's reason for us to be in touch, um, then, then we will do so. So I'll go ahead and hit stop. Okay, and that is the conclusion of ZoomCron 2, a conversation with author Jason Horsley. I was really lucky to record that conversation with Jason back in April of 2021, especially as he pulls away from, from public life. Um, and I still see him on, on the Twitter every now and then, but definitely not as involved as much as as he has been and so really really great opportunity to talk to a fellow synchro mystic um the next conversation that i will be putting up is my conversation with michael wan another synchro mystic um, i consider myself a synchro mystic as well doing work in my own backyard in zoom town that is missoula montana where i am recording where i am living uh so stay tuned for further episodes. And if you want to get in touch with me, I do have a Telegram account. I need to double check on what that information is. You can also just reach me at my Yahoo, and that's willskink at yahoo.com, W-I-L-L-S-K-I-N-K at yahoo.com. I'm your host, Travis William Skink-Mateer. Thank you for tuning in.